Hello and welcome to The Solution, a wellness manifesto. I'm your host, Dr. Nate Lowenstein, and this is episode number six, Good Enough and Smart Enough. All right, let's get into it. and welcome back. I apologize for the week without an episode. The holiday weekend got a little bit busier than I anticipated and I just didn't get around to getting it finished. But anyway, we're back. I want to briefly kind of summarize the last episode a little bit before we move forward. In the last episode, we talked about self-talk and your belief and how those things can actually influence your physiology. Then I give you an exercise to start working toward identifying your own self-talk and belief. What I want you to do with that information, if you're willing, is to start to try to identify the patterns of your inner dialogue. What I'm primarily interested in with this discovery exercise is I want to help you identify whether you would define a majority of your inner dialogue as positive or negative. What is the primary pattern that you see? So some examples could be optimistic versus pessimistic, problem-focused or solution-focused. Do you have a primary focus on the past, the present, or the future? Is it largely cooperative or is it more confrontational? Do you feel seen and appreciated or ignored and taken for granted? These are some of the ways that we can communicate our world to ourselves, and those ways will actually affect how we communicate with other people as well. If you identify what you would define as primarily positive self-interaction, good for you. Keep up the good work. If, on the other hand, you're identifying primarily negative beliefs or negative self-talk, that's probably something we need to focus on and work on a little bit. So when your self-talk is primarily negative, what you're actually doing is setting yourself up for stress. Several episodes ago, I mentioned a paper authored by a guy named Cohen, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In this paper, they discovered that participants under the highest amount of perceived psychological stress were the most susceptible to infectious illness, so the common cold. We've talked about stress before, and here it's worth kind of defining that. So in the same paper published by Cohen, They do a good job of defining stress as any adverse physical, mental, or emotional stimulus that upsets the organism's homeostasis. In his book, Why Don't Zebras Get Ulcers, a renowned behavioral biologist named Robert Sapolsky, and by the way, if you don't have a favorite behavioral biologist yet, I'm going to highly recommend Dr. Sapolsky. Anyway, in his book, he defines a stressor as anything in the outside world that knocks you out of homeostatic balance. And the stress response is what your body is going to do to try to reestablish homeostasis or homeostatic balance. And that's regardless of the stressor, whether you're injured, starving, too hot, too cold, psychologically stressed, no matter what, you're going to turn on the same response. To simplify, any event that causes you to feel stress, anxiety, fear, pain, discomfort, sadness, etc., is going to kick off a fight or flight in an attempt to get you out of that stressful environment and back into a healthy environment where you can recover. Dr. Sapolsky goes on to say that the stress response can be mobilized not only in response to a physical or psychological insult, but also to the expectation of them. And that is something that makes humans pretty unique. We can anticipate stress and go into fight or flight just by thinking about it. Okay, Nate, why are we going into all this? Well, if you've identified that your self-talk is primarily negative or pessimistic, you're essentially putting yourself in that stress response. Now, does long-term stress automatically lead to sickness? Not necessarily, but it absolutely increases your risks. 
In earlier episodes, I've discussed how our body's physiological response to stress sets the stage for things like diabetes and heart disease and cancer, but it also causes other problems. Your fight or flight system runs opposite to your parasympathetic system, which we simplify as your rest and digest. So you have fight or flight on one side, rest and digest on the other. When you're in fight or flight, you won't perform rest and digest as well. This can affect things like digestion, creating digestive issues. It can affect growth and repair. It can cause pain to be more readily noticeable. Lots of this can lead to more physical discomfort and therefore more stress. Prolonged stress can also impact fertility, in some cases leading to reproductive dysfunction in both men and women. In addition, prolonged stress will inhibit immune system function, and that's going to reduce your ability to fight off disease and infection and your ability to heal from injury. From another phenomenal book on the subject called Pictures of the Mind by Miriam Bolin Fitzgerald, and I have no idea if I pronounced her name wrong, so Miriam, if you're listening, my apologies. If we understand that anger or anxiety are often suppression of negative self-talk, these quotes will really slam home. So a quote from her book, studies tell us that being too angry can wreck our physical health and relationships and even end our lives prematurely. Suppression or holding on to that anger elevates blood pressure and other physiological stress markers. And this is a big one, not just for the person suppressing his or her emotional response, but for their intimate social partner as well. Essentially, it's possible for you to create a stressful mind environment for yourself and potentially anyone else around you. Learning to cope with stress and anger will result in, quote, higher marital quality, decreased risk of infection, faster recovery from injury, decreased death rates from life-threatening illnesses. Well, why is that? It should become obvious by now, but the reason that is true is because you're no longer living your life in a chronic fight-or-flight response. So take a second to think about the things on that list. Higher marital quality under less stress seems obvious, but a decreased risk from infection and a faster recovery from injury? The connection between what's going on in your mind and what's happening in your body is remarkable and also a little bit frightening if we're not looking after both of those things. Turning our eyes towards America right now, what I see both subjectively and objectively is a nation full of physically and emotionally unhealthy people. Well, why? Because our current lifestyle behaviors, how we eat, move, and think, fuel illness and not wellness. Healthy people don't take guns into public places and shoot strangers. Healthy people don't get into physical fights with strangers in parking lots over trivial things. America, and indeed much of what we think of as Western society, is not at all a healthy place. We don't eat well. We're largely sedentary. And those things, along with a stressful world, are contributing to all of the chronic illnesses we've been discussing. So what is at the heart of all this? Well, the underlying physiology of stress or stress response is something called glucocorticoids. These are hormones. When our brain perceives a stressor in our environment, or when we anticipate or imagine a stressful situation, we're going to experience an increase in these hormones in our bloodstream. Long-term exposure to these hormones creates a scenario that increases likelihood of disease. Chronic stress has implications in cancer, heart disease, diabetes, blood pressure issues, blood glucose regulation and insulin resistance, learning disabilities, memory, depression, sleep, growth, tissue repair and healing, appetite control, susceptibility to pain, digestive issues. The list goes on and on. That's not even an exhaustive list, and you probably got bored of listening to it. There are implications in children as well. Glucocorticoids, these hormones we've been talking about, can pass to a developing baby before it's born, essentially teaching that unborn child that the world they're about to enter into is a stressful place. In addition, children who live in a chronically stressful environment 
or children who have been abused will have elevated stress hormones. This long-term exposure will create potential for chronic illness in these kids. As I've mentioned before, type 2 diabetes used to be called adult-onset diabetes. They don't call it that anymore because too many kids are being diagnosed with this adult-onset disease. But chronic stress in kids also has some pretty alarming impacts on their brains, notably in two areas. One, in the area associated with new learning called the hippocampus. And actually, it's important to point out that chronic stress will actually cause a shrinking in the hippocampus in adults and children. So this affects adults as well in terms of new learning. The other area of the brain impacted by chronic stress at a young age is the frontal cortex. Chronic exposure to glucocorticoids in children causes a decreased size and activity in this part of the brain during its development. So why is that significant? Well, it's important because the frontal cortex is the area of the brain associated with rational decision-making, and it's the part of the brain that puts a check on the amygdala, which is the area of the brain associated with fear, anxiety, and potentially aggression. When the brain learns that the world is always stressful, it needs to be able to react quickly to all of the stress around it and not pause to consider the implications of the behavior. You have no time to write poetry or discover the atom if you're always worried about whether or not you have to fight for your life. Geez, Nate, that's an awful lot of bad news. It sounds like we're doomed. Not so fast, Nate, self-talk. Here's the deal. Yes, stress and stress physiology are absolutely involved in chronic illness, but it needs to be understood that not all people who experience stress will develop illness. It depends on how you cope to a large degree. That some people who are seemingly healthy may become sick anyway. And that putting a laser focus on eliminating stress probably isn't a panacea for all illness in big part because a laser focus on eliminating stress is likely to become a stressor by itself. The real bottom line is you need stress. You need stress physiology. There are times in your life where this vigilance is necessary for you to survive. The message here is that we need to find ways to help control and eliminate some of the chronic stress to help reduce our risk of acquiring diseases that stress is involved with. As with anything we're discussing, there isn't one single solution. It involves a balance of living for wellness. There's another story I like to share in my workshops about the people who live in a place called the Hunza Valley, which you can look up if you're interested. They were featured in a magazine article, and the focus of the feature was their longevity. The people in this valley regularly lived to be well over 100 years old, according to them, and they were quite healthy even at the end of their lives. I remember reading about someone wanting to bottle the water that flowed through that valley to sell to Westerners as though that was the answer to their long life. And that sounds classic, you know, everybody just drink the water of Hunza Valley and you'll live forever. No. Since we're discussing thinking well, I'm going to share a story from the article. The author noted that none of the villagers he was talking to had locked up their belongings when they were out of their house or in the evening. They didn't have any, a lot of the things that we consider luxury items anyway, but what they did have, they, it went unprotected for the most part. And the writer asked why this was the case. And the reply was, what do I have that someone would want to steal? And if someone needed that thing so badly, why wouldn't I just give it to them? Now, I'm not advocating that you leave your house unlocked and offer up your belongings to anyone who happens to be in the neighborhood. I, like you, like my stuff. But just understand that their mindset is not focused on their stuff. Number one, it's focused on their community. And they don't live long lives because of the water flowing through their valley or their neighborhood has magical powers. They live a longer life because they eat, move, and think well. Okay, so coming back to identifying a pattern of self-talk in ourselves, if it's negative, it's likely and hopefully obvious by now that that's creating some stress in your body as well. So what's the solution? 
And honestly, it depends. There's a couple of different ways to approach this situation. If this is something you feel like you can't get control of on your own by working toward wellness with improved nutrition, fitness, and mindful exercise, you should talk to someone who's trained to help you work through these issues. Talk therapy can be very effective. As with enlisting the help of any professional who helps to build your health and wellness, you need to find someone that you are comfortable with, someone who you feel like you can build an effective working relationship with. You know, if you if you take a shot at this and you're unhappy with the interaction, that's okay. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Look for someone else. If, however, you feel like this is something you're ready to begin tackling on your own, I want to try to give you some tools to help you work towards that. Because here's the good news. You can make changes to how you emotionally interact with the world. Uh, going back to the book Pictures of the Mind, which we've just discussed earlier, Researchers have identified brain pathways associated with pro-social emotions, such as optimism, kindness, compassion, and so on. And what's interesting about that is a brain pathway, when you swing a golf club or hit a tennis racket or throw a ball, you're firing a brain pathway that helps that movement pattern be created. When you think a good thought or perform an act of kindness and feel a certain way about it, you're firing a brain pathway there as well. So they've identified these and they've been able to show that these pathways are trainable and that they become stronger with practice, much like your back and legs become stronger with deadlifting. So just like swinging a golf club over and over and over again is going to hopefully make you better at swinging a golf club, being kind and optimistic over and over again will make you better at being kind and optimistic. In fact, there's a quote from the book that I'd like to share here because it's so on point with this discussion. Practicing these pro-social emotions makes our brain circuitry more positive and responsive in ways that could be used to prevent depression and other mood disorders, prevent bullying and violence, and even prevent the physical damage inflicted by our own negative internal states. So they're talking about stress and allostasis right there in that part of the book. All right, so let's get to work. The work, if you remember from last episode about replaying and, re and rehearsing congruent behavior. So if you find that you're playing over a situation you were in and you don't like the outcome, rewrite it and play that over and over in your mind until it becomes real and keep practicing this. The thing I'd like to add this week is daily affirmations, hence the name of the episode. If you guys remember affirmations with Stuart Smalley from back in the day in Saturday Night Live where he was good enough, smart enough and doggone it, people liked him. Well, it turns out that that's a pretty effective tool towards helping you practice those pro-social emotions. So thank you very much, Stuart. Ideally, uh, these affirmations should be relatively short and applicable to you. They should, they should be meaningful to you and what you're trying to accomplish. So a good example, it seems pretty generic, but it's a good start. I am proud of myself for making healthy decisions, and each good choice I make makes me feel confident and relaxed. Once you have an affirmation, you're going to repeat it to yourself 50 or 100 times. And you can also keep it on a note card and just refer to it throughout the day and repeat it 10 or 20 times. The key when you practice the affirmation and when, you, when you're repeating it is to be genuine. Make it real to yourself. You know, don't just, oh, I'm proud of myself for making healthy decisions or whatever. Make it a real sentence that you're saying, I am proud of myself. I'm doing a good job here. If you need more examples of affirmations, the internet's a great source. I think you can even buy note cards that have collections of them, flip through, find the ones that appeal to you and go, or a Google search. Um, but realistically, as you practice this, you should start to try to write 
your own so that they're meaningful to you. Uh, you can also use an affirmation to reinfor- reinforce the behavior modification. So behavior modification is something we're going to talk about a little bit more next episode. But this would look something like this. At the beginning of the day, using an affirmation, you're going to state something in the past tense and repeat it throughout the day to help you stay on track. That might sound confusing, so I'm going to give you an example. Let's say you're trying to stop drinking soda, which is arguably a good choice. You can say in your affirmation, I am proud of myself for not having any soda today. Sticking to my goals makes me feel like an ass-whooping wellness ninja. You know, something like that. And then you repeat it over and over again, and it's going to help you stop from grabbing that soda. In the next episode, we are going to overlap thinking well with one of our other pillars of wellness and begin to talk about one of the most powerful antidepressants available today, exercise. After that, we're likely going to circle back around to some nutrition stuff and start looking at some of the specific things about healthy eating and possibly digging in deeper to your friend's stupid diet. I've had a few listeners message me with questions. Please keep those coming. I would really like to know what you're getting, what I'm missing, and then we can address those things in a Q&A episode once I have enough of them. So thanks again for tuning in this week, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Solution, A Wellness Manifesto. I appreciate you being here. I hope that the information we covered in this week's episode was beneficial to you and that you can apply it into your life to help yourself move away from sickness and towards health. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Functional Performance Chiropractic and Wellness, for their ongoing support. And I'd like to appeal to you. If you know anyone who would benefit from the information we're talking about on this show, and I know you do, please refer them back to episode number one so we can all get started on the same page. I look forward to working with you and them. Until next week, take good care of yourself.